Section 11 of the Roswell Report, Case Closed by James McAndrew. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Bennett. The Roswell Report, Case Closed by James McAndrew. Appendix B, Part 2, Witness Statements. Statement of Witness. Date, 28 October, 1996. I, William C. Kaufman, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired, hereby voluntarily, of my own free will, make the following statement. This was done without coercion, unlawful influence, or unlawful inducement. I was drafted into the Army of the United States in 1943, transferred to the Army Air Forces, and was commissioned as a pilot in 1944. From 1950 until 1967, with a break for training for a combat tour in Korea and for educational assignments at AFIT, I was assigned to the Aeromedical Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio. During that time, I was a physiological training officer and worked in the development of early pressure suits. I tested many high-altitude pilots and also the first group of astronauts. Later, during my Air Force career, in 1961, I earned a Ph.D. in physiology and biophysics. I was assigned to the Aeromedical Laboratory for three tours and retired in 1968 as the Chief of the Biodynamics Branch of the Aeromedical Field Laboratory at Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico. During my third assignment at Wright-Patterson, I volunteered along with Captain Dan Fulgham to be a backup pilot for Captain Joe Kittinger for his high-altitude balloon project, Project Excelsior. Captain Kittinger instructed Captain Fulgham and me in ballooning in May 1959. At the end of an overnight training flight on the morning of May 21, 1959, northwest of Roswell, New Mexico, we, Kittinger, Fulgham, and I, had an accident with a balloon. We were practicing touch-and-go landings when a severe gust of wind overturned the gondola, dumping all of us to the ground with the gondola on top of us. The accident occurred in a small pasture where a pony was grazing next to a small cottage. For safety, we were followed during hours of darkness by a C-131 aircraft and during the day by an H-21 helicopter. We were followed the entire time by technicians and a truck for communications and for the recovery of the balloon and gondola. Seeing the accident, the crews of the helicopter and the recovery trucks came to our assistance, much to the dismay of the farmer who owned the pony, which ran away when the truck broke down the fence to reach the crash site. I recall that a member of the helicopter crew attempted to calm the farmer. Captain Fulgham sustained an injury to the forehead when the lip of the gondola struck him. Captain Fulgham thought he had fractured his skull, but the experimental helmet he was wearing apparently protected him. Captain Kittinger was bleeding from a cut on the face. I was beneath Fulgham and Kittinger and unhurt. Fulgham was loaded into the helicopter and we were taken to the nearest hospital at Walker Air Force Base in Roswell. I recall the helicopter pilot called the air traffic control tower at Walker and informed them that we were inbound with an injured pilot from a balloon accident. This was quite unusual and I believe the tower personnel might have thought we were a surprise strategic air command inspection team that at the direction of the SAC commander, General Curtis E. LeMay, sometimes made unannounced visits by helicopter. 
We landed in front of the tower and were met by an ambulance along with a detail of military police with machine guns. The military police escorted us to the hospital for treatment and to verify our story of the balloon crash. While Captain Fulgham and Captain Kittinger were being treated, I was asked to explain to the Walker Air Force Base commander what had happened. After Captain Kittinger was treated, he called Colonel Stapp from a phone adjacent to the waiting room where numerous military wives were waiting for prenatal care. Captain Kittinger, as the project officer, was concerned what effect this accident might have on the future of his program. As we waited for Fulgham, Kittinger paced up and down the hall concerned about Fulgham and getting out of the hospital before Walker Air Force Base officials might complicate matters. I do not recall any male civilians in the hospital, nor do I recall Captain Kittinger being involved in an altercation of any kind. Captain Kittinger did not shout or use obscene language. He was simply interested in getting medical attention for Fulgham and leaving as soon as possible. I do recall that one or two nurses were present. I do not recall a black NCO accompanying Kittinger while we were in the hospital. When the medical personnel were finished treating Fulgham, all three of us returned to Holloman Air Force Base by helicopter about noon the same day. The following day I took my FAA exam and was awarded a balloon pilot license. Three days later, on Sunday, Kittinger, Fulgham, and I returned to Wright-Patterson via a special C-131 flight. Fulgham looked very odd with two black eyes and protruding forehead. His head was so swollen he could not wear his uniform hat for some time. I later worked with Captain Kittinger on the Stargazer project and occasionally flew aircraft with him. During my time at the Aeromedical Laboratory, I neither saw nor heard anything that would lead me to believe that the Air Force was keeping aliens at Wright-Patterson. I knew there was a project on UFOs called Blue Book at the base, but to my knowledge, the Aeromedical Laboratory was not involved. Many scientific accomplishments came out of the various laboratories at Wright-Patterson, but I am unaware of any that might have involved aliens or UFOs. I am not part of any conspiracy to withhold or provide misleading information to the United States government or the American public. There is no classified information that I am withholding related to this inquiry, and I have never been threatened by U.S. government persons concerning refraining from talking about this matter. This is as I recollect those events. Signed, William C. Kaufman, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired. Statement of Witness. Date, 24 June, 95. I, Joseph W. Kittinger, Jr., Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired. Hereby state that James McAndrew was identified as a lieutenant U.S. Air Force Reserve on this date at my home and do hereby voluntarily and of my own free will make the following statement. This was done without having been subject to any coercion, unlawful influence, or unlawful inducement. I entered the U.S. Air Force in 1949 as an aviation cadet. From 1950 to 1953, I flew fighters in Europe before being assigned to the fighter test section at Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico, in July 1953. During my tour as a test pilot, I conducted the first zero-gravity tests and was the balloon pilot for the first Project Man-High High-Altitude Research Mission. In 1958, I was assigned to the escape section of the Aeromedical Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio. During this tour, I was the project officer of Project Excelsior and made three high-altitude parachute jumps, 
the highest from 102,800 feet, which today remains a world record. For these jumps, I was awarded the Hannon Trophy for 1960 by President Eisenhower. Following Excelsior, I was the project officer of Stargazer, a project that made astronomical observations from a high-altitude balloon. I flew two combat tours in Southeast Asia with the Air Commandos. I later flew a tour in F-4s and was the squadron commander of the 555th Tactical Fighter Squadron. I accumulated over 1,000 combat flying hours and I am credited with one aerial victory. I spent 10 months as a POW in Hanoi. Upon my return, I attended Air War College, flew F-4s, and retired from the Air Force in 1978. In 1984, I became the first person to make a solo crossing of the Atlantic by balloon. In 1958, I was made the project officer of Excelsior by Colonel John Paul Stapp, the Aeromedical Laboratory Commander. I supervised and was actively involved in the dropping and recovery of anthropomorphic dummies from high-altitude balloons at Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico, for this project. We also dropped dummies from aircraft only at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio. The object of the Holloman tests were to study the freefall characteristics of dummies dropped from balloons at altitudes of 50,000 to 100,000 feet. Based on this data, we designed a parachute that stabilized the dummies, and I later used this parachute on my three high-altitude jumps. The balloons carrying the dummies were launched from various locations in New Mexico and often impacted off the White Sands Proving Ground, depending on the wind conditions. The dummies were outfitted with clothing and equipment of an Air Force pilot. The facial features of the dummies were not as pronounced as a human. The ears and noses did not protrude. I do not recall any dummies with ears or noses. Some of the dummies were not complete. They sometimes did not have arms or legs. To someone not associated with the project or who viewed the dummies from a distance, they could appear to be human or with some imagination, a space alien. In fact, I recall one incident at Wright-Patterson where one of our dummies landed near the backyard of General Rawlings, commander of the Air Force Research and Development Command. General Rawlings' wife was entertaining officers' wives that afternoon when one of our dummies' parachute failed to deploy and impacted the ground in full view of the ladies at General Rawlings' home. I acted quickly to retrieve the dummy and went to the impact site and recovered it by throwing it in the back of a pickup truck and quickly driving away. Later that day, I received a call from Colonel Stapp who informed me that some of the women at the party believed that the dummy was a human and they were appalled to see the careless nature in which the obviously dead or injured parachutist was hauled away. At Holloman Air Force Base, recovery of the dummies were handled by the balloon branch, but members of my project team, including myself, often assisted. The standard procedure was to track the dummy both from the ground and air to attempt to recover the dummies in a timely manner. On the ground, we used an assortment of Air Force vehicles to track and recover not only the dummies, but also other scientific balloon payloads. We used trucks, communications vans, converted field ambulances, cranes, and trailers. In the air, we used helicopters, C-47 transports, and L-19 and L-20 light observation aircraft. On occasion, civilians would observe our recovery operations. We often attracted a crowd due to the odd appearance of the balloon payloads and dummies and also the aircraft that circled overhead or landed on nearby roads. 
We also use many of the same procedures and equipment to launch from off-range locations. During the recoveries, weapons were not carried because there was no classified information or equipment. I do not recall any altercations of any kind. At no time did I or any of the personnel make threats against civilians. We always attempted to maintain good relations with the local civilians and explain the purpose of the project to them if they asked. We were directed to remove as much of the material dropped by the balloon as possible. Sometimes this was difficult because the balloon and payload would break apart and cover a large area. We collected the debris in these cases by fanning out across the field until we had collected even very small portions of the payload and balloon. We were particularly careful to recover the large plastic balloons because cattle would ingest the material and the ranchers would file claims against the government. Additionally, there were reward notices that offered $25 for the return of the equipment attached to each of the balloons. I wrote a book, The Long Lonely Leap, E.P. Dutton and Company, 1961, that completely describes Project Excelsior and my participation. Also as a part of the high-altitude balloon projects, I trained balloon pilots in May 1959 at the request of Colonel Stapp. Colonel Stapp was concerned that I might be injured as a result of the hazardous nature of the projects and he wanted backup pilots to be trained. The backup pilots, Captain Dan Fulgham and Captain Bill Kaufman, were volunteers from the Aeromedical Laboratory and they were sent to Holloman from Ray Patterson for training on a temporary duty basis. On our second training flight, Fulgham, Kaufman, and I flew an overnight mission that was launched at Holloman and ended with a crash northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. We were followed on this mission by an aircraft at night, a helicopter during the day, and a ground crew in trucks at all times. I recall that just after sunrise the weather had deteriorated and I directed Fulgham to land the balloon in a small field. This was the last suitable field before we would overfly the city of Roswell. I remember approaching the field just over the trees and I recall our forward velocity was about 10 to 12 knots, a little fast for landing. When we touched down, Fulgham cut the balloon away and due to the forward velocity, the gondola flipped over spilling all three of us on the ground. While lying on the ground, I realized that Fulgham was injured and Kaufman and I raised the gondola. Fulgham had been struck in the head by the edge of the gondola and I could see the blood rapidly accumulating under his scalp in the forehead area. We treated him for shock and soon the recovery vehicles and the chase helicopter arrived. I decided to transport Fulgham by helicopter to the hospital at nearby Walker Air Force Base. When we arrived at Walker, I remember that security was tight, as it was at all strategic air command bases, and we were closely scrutinized by security personnel due to the unusual circumstances and early hour of our arrival. I had two concerns once we arrived at the hospital. First to get treatment for Fulgham and second to leave as soon as possible. After I was assured that Fulgham's injuries were not serious, I wanted to quickly leave the base before the Walker Air Force Base Flying Safety Officer arrived to fill out an accident report. I didn't want a report filled out because an accident investigation would bring unwanted scrutiny to the project. Even though the project was unclassified, I did not want any publicity or premature releases of information. Although Fulgham's injuries were not serious, his head had swollen considerably. Both eyes were black and his face had swollen so much you could barely see his nose. I believe that if someone saw him while we were at Walker, they would have been startled. 
When his treatment was completed, we all three returned to Holloman on the helicopter. At Holloman, Fulgham was admitted to the hospital, and I made preparations for him to return to his duty station at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Due to his grotesque appearance, I did not want Fulgham to fly on a commercial airline. I made arrangements for all of us to fly to Wright-Patterson on a C-131 a few days later. When we arrived at Wright-Patterson, I assisted Fulgham down the steps of the aircraft because his eyes were swollen shut and he could not see. His wife was waiting at the bottom of the steps of the aircraft, and she asked me where her husband was. I replied, This is your husband, and she screamed and began to cry. While I was at the Walker Air Force Base Hospital, I do not recall any contact with a male civilian. I certainly did not call anyone an SOB or speak to anyone in a disrespectful manner. I did not make any threats or instruct anyone else to make threats. I recall nurses in the hospital, but I am not certain if they participated in the treatment of Captain Fulgham. I was not accompanied by a black NCO at the hospital, but there may have been a black NCO on the balloon recovery team. I recall no body bags in the hospital, and I am sure there were no aliens in the hospital, just Dan Fulgham with a very odd-looking head injury. I was also involved in the Joint Air Force, Navy, and Massachusetts Institute of Technology Astronomical Observation Project, Project Stargazer. The object of this project was to make observations via a stabilized telescope mounted atop of a gondola suspended from a high-altitude balloon. I was the U.S. Air Force project officer, and Dr. J. Allen Hynek was the scientific advisor. I worked very closely with Dr. Hynek over a period of five years, from 1958 to 1963. Dr. Hynek would typically spend half a day working on Stargazer and then the rest of the day participating as one of the consultants on the UFO study, Project Blue Book, that was also conducted at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Dr. Hynek, as the scientific advisor to Stargazer, was very familiar with the techniques and capabilities of the Air Force High Altitude Balloon Program. Dr. Hynek once approached me and we discussed at length the possibility that Air Force High Altitude Balloons were responsible for many UFO sightings. We ended the conversation in agreement that the balloons probably accounted for many of the UFO sightings. In other conversations, Dr. Hynek always gave me the impression that there were very few UFO sightings that could not be explained by good scientific investigation. At no time did Dr. Hynek mention or discuss the alleged Roswell incident. I was therefore flabbergasted when Dr. Hynek appeared to believe that some of these sightings were of an extraterrestrial origin. I am not part of any conspiracy to withhold or provide misleading information to the United States government or the American public. There is no classified information that I am withholding related to this inquiry, and I have never been threatened by U.S. government persons concerning refraining from talking about this matter. Signed, Joseph W. Kittinger, Jr., Colonel, U.S. Air Force, Retired. Statement of Witness. Date, 31 May, 95. I, Roland H. Lutz, Chief Master Sergeant, U.S. Air Force, Retired, hereby state that James McAndrew was identified as a lieutenant, U.S. Air Force Reserve, on this date at my home, and do hereby, voluntarily, and of my own free will, make the following statement. This was done without having been subjected to any coercion, unlawful influence, or unlawful inducement. I enlisted in the U.S. Navy in 1947 and transferred to the U.S. Air Force in 1958. 
In June 1958, I was assigned to the flight surgeon's office at Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico, as an aeromedical technician. I served several tours in Southeast Asia and retired from the Air Force in 1974 as an aeromedical superintendent. On May 20-21, 20 1959, I was assigned to provide medical coverage for a balloon training mission that took off from Holloman Air Force Base and ended with a crash near Roswell, New Mexico. Captain Joe Kittinger was training two other pilots, Captain Fulgham and Captain Kaufman. I followed the balloon in an ambulance during the night, and at daybreak, I followed the balloon in an H-21 helicopter. Just after daybreak, I saw the balloon crash, and the three pilots were dumped from the gondola. I immediately informed the helicopter pilot, and we landed in a field on which cattle were grazing. I recall the rancher was upset because the helicopter was frightening his cattle and some cattle had gotten out of the field. I assessed the injuries to the pilots and recommended they be taken immediately to the closest hospital, which was Walker Air Force Base, approximately 5 to 10 minutes away by helicopter. Captain Fulgham's head was swelling due to a hematoma he received when the gondola struck him. Captain Kittinger was cut on the face and was bleeding. Captain Kaufman was uninjured. At Walker, I remember a telephone conversation with a flight surgeon who told me to go home and sleep it off. He apparently did not believe my story of three Air Force pilots that were victims of a balloon crash. However, I was able to convince him and he treated Captain Fulgham and Captain Kittinger. While at the hospital, Captain Fulgham's head had swelled enormously and his eyes were beginning to turn black. I do not recall that anything unusual occurred at the hospital at Walker. I remember the three pilots sitting on a bench in the hallway waiting to be treated. I do not remember that Captain Kittinger was involved in an altercation with anyone while at the hospital. If he had, I would have known about it. Captain Kittinger was concerned with getting medical treatment for his injured crew member, Captain Fulgham, and returning to Holloman. I also do not recall a black NCO accompanying Captain Kittinger while we were at the hospital. I do not remember a nurse assisting in the treatment of Captain Fulgham or Captain Kittinger. I also do not remember a male civilian or any personnel or vehicles from a mortuary, and I do not recall any remains in body bags in the hospital. I was present the entire time when the events described here took place. I am certain that this event had nothing to do with space aliens or any other irregular activity that would require a cover-up. It was a balloon crash and nothing else. I am not part of any conspiracy to withhold or provide misleading information to the United States government or the American public. There is no classified information that I am withholding related to this inquiry, and I have never been threatened by U.S. government persons concerning refraining from talking about this matter. Signed, Roland H. Lutz, Chief Master Sergeant, U.S. Air Force, retired. Statement of Witness, Date 20 June 95. I, Raymond A. Madsen, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired, hereby state that James McAndrew was identified as a lieutenant, U.S. Air Force Reserve, on this date at my place of employment, and do hereby, voluntarily, and of my own free will, make the following statement. This was done without having been subjected to any coercion, unlawful influence, or unlawful inducement. I was born, raised, and presently reside in New Mexico. I graduated from New Mexico A&M College in 1954. 
I entered the Air Force in 1955 and was assigned a short time later to the Aeromedical Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio. At the Aeromedical Laboratory, I was assigned to the escape section as a project officer and test parachutist. During this time, I also had extensive participation in various aspects of the space program and worked on the highly classified U-2 project. I served a tour of duty in Alaska and at the School of Aerospace Medicine at Brooks Air Force Base, Texas, before being reassigned to the Aeromedical Laboratory at Wright-Patterson. I retired from the Air Force in 1979, and I am currently an environmental specialist for the state of New Mexico. The first project that I was assigned at Wright-Patterson was Project 7218, later changed to Project 7222. This project was first known by the name High Dive and then was known as Excelsior. The object of this project was to study the freefall characteristics of anthropomorphic dummies from balloons at altitudes of 50,000 to 100,000 feet. Following satisfactory dummy drops, Captain Joe Kittinger made a series of high-altitude parachute jumps that culminated with a jump from 102,800 feet. I assumed the duties of project officer for the dummy drops in the spring of 1956. I made numerous trips to Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico, the site of the drops, from 1956 until the end of the project in 1959. Dummies were also dropped for this project at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base by personnel from the parachute branch. I wrote two technical reports that described the project in considerable detail. The type of anthropomorphic dummy used primarily was manufactured by Alderson Laboratories, but we also used Sierra Manufacturing type dummies. Both of these dummies are shown in the technical reports. The Alderson dummy had facial features that were not lifelike and ears that were not well defined. The dummies were outfitted with flight suits of various colors, fuchsia, olive drab, and sage green, a shade of gray. We chose the Alderson dummy because it was relatively inexpensive as compared to the Sierra dummy. We encountered considerable difficulty dropping the dummies from the balloons. I designed the rack that suspended the dummies, two at a time, from the balloon. On numerous occasions, the dummies were fouled during the release sequence and the dummy rode a streamer all the way to the ground. Other times, malfunctions occurred that caused the two dummies and the entire rack assembly to descend to the ground as one package. Both of these instances are described in the technical reports. I participated in at least two dummy recoveries. The meteorologist from the balloon branch, Duke Gildenberg, would determine the best place to launch the balloons depending on the prevailing weather conditions. Duke also predicted with considerable accuracy where the dummies would impact. I specifically recall a dummy I recovered near the Jornada test range between Leesburg and Oregon, New Mexico. During this recovery, I drove a weapons carrier and I was only able to locate one of the dummies. I never found out what happened to the other one. The next recovery I remember was on a ranch just southwest of Roswell. We were given directions to the area by the balloon branch personnel who had been contacted by a rancher. The equipment had reward notices taped to them to aid in recovery. We went to the Smith Ranch. I remember the name because I went to New Mexico A&M with the rancher. I knew him as Smitty. We searched that day from horseback and could not find the dummies. The following day we resumed our search from horseback and again could not find the dummies. I also recall that Smitty asked us for some of the parachute material so he could make a shirt. 
We dropped many dummies from the balloons, and I know many were not immediately recovered, but most were. I served for 25 years in the Air Force, and most of those years were in the aeromedical field. I participated in the space program and the highly classified early stages of the U-2 program. Never during this time were aliens or flying saucers a part of any project. There were, however, countless achievements by the Air Force in aerospace medicine that were the result of dedicated scientific research. It seems likely to me that someone could have mistaken our anthropomorphic dummies for something that they were not. I am not a part of any conspiracy to withhold or provide misleading information to the United States government or the American public. There is no classified information that I am withholding related to this inquiry, and I have never been threatened by U.S. government persons concerning refraining from talking about this matter. Signed, Raymond A. Madsen, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired. Statement of Witness Date, 25 April, 1996 Place, Aztec, New Mexico I, Frank B. Nordstrom, M.D., hereby state that James McAndrew was identified as a captain, U.S. Air Force Reserve, on this date at my home, and do hereby, voluntarily and of my own free will, make the following statement. This was done without having been subjected to any coercion, unlawful influence, or unlawful inducement. I was on active duty in the U.S. Air Force and stationed at Walker Air Force Base, Roswell, New Mexico, from July 1951 until June 1953. During that time, I was a pediatrician assigned to the base hospital. Following my tour of duty with the Air Force, I attended the University of Colorado as a resident in pediatrics. In July 1954, I relocated to Farmington, New Mexico and began a private pediatric practice. I retired from private practice in 1987 and became the medical director of the San Juan Regional Medical Center, which is also located in Farmington, New Mexico. In 1989, I retired from that position and presently reside in Aztec, New Mexico. I have been shown two transcripts of interviews where an individual named Glenn Dennis described conversations and visits he claims he had with a pediatrician in the late 1940s or early 1950s in Farmington, New Mexico. According to these interviews, Mr. Dennis also claims that this pediatrician had previously served at the hospital at Walker Air Force Base slash Roswell Army Airfield. Since I am the only physician in Farmington, New Mexico, who previously served at the Walker Air Force Base slash Roswell Army Airfield Hospital, I believe I am the person he is referring to in these interviews. I am confident of this because I know I was the first pediatrician to practice in Farmington which, when I arrived in 1954, was a small community of approximately 8,000 people. I remained the sole pediatrician there for approximately 20 years, and I know most, if not all, of the physicians in the area. Even though I believe I am the person Mr. Dennis referred to in the interviews, I do not remember him. I can state with reasonable certainty that I cannot recall any conversations with him, and he, to my knowledge, never visited me in Farmington, New Mexico, in Colorado, or any place else. I have been told, however, that a person named Glenn Dennis operated a drugstore in the late 1950s, early 1960s, just outside Farmington in Aztec, New Mexico, but I do not recall any contact with him there either. While I was stationed at Walker Air Force Base, I do not recall any incidents that may explain the information Mr. Dennis provided in the interviews. To my knowledge, there was only one fatal aircraft accident during my tour of duty 
and that accident involved a Walker Air Force Base-based aircraft in the United Kingdom. I was not involved in any aspect of that accident. I also do not recall any other incidents such as automobile accidents or house fires that may be the source of this information, nor do I recall a nurse named Lieutenant Naomi Self or a nurse named Captain Slats Wilson. While at Walker Air Force Base, I did not witness or hear rumors of anything that involved flying saucers, aliens, or anything else of an extraterrestrial nature. I am not part of a conspiracy to withhold information from either the U.S. government or the American public. There is no classified information that I am withholding related to this inquiry, and I have not been threatened by U.S. government persons concerning not talking about this matter. Signed, Frank B. Nordstrom, M.D. End of section 11. Recording by Aaron Bennett.